The other thing that's usually developed alongside of it is a is a vinegar mother, which looks like a SCOBY. So that's the bacteria basically pooping out cellulose, for lack of a better explanation. <laughs> and so, make it sound more glamorous, please. I know, right? Welcome back to another episode of the Next Ingredient Podcast, where we love to celebrate all things food. Today, we get to learn about apples through the lens of a fermentation expert, Kirsten K. Shockey. She has written five fermentation books that grew out of living on a small holding in Southern Oregon and a passion for good food. Welcome, Kirsten. Hi there. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being on here. And I also have to thank my beautiful friend, Sam, for connecting us. She grew up next to you guys out in the Applegate Valley, which I have yet to visit, but I hear it's really beautiful. It is. It's quite, it's quite lovely. Awesome. Awesome. Why don't you start with your connection to fermentation? Sure. So I, um, as you mentioned, I have spent a number of years living in the Applegate Valley on a small holding. And um, a huge part of that is our love of food and good food and real food and growing our own food. And as soon as you start gardening or milking or tending fruit trees, you end up with an abundance because, you know, contrary to what the grocery store makes us believe, everything is seasonal. And when that season's on, it's, you know, it's on. Um, and so, you know, the next the next piece to that is to start to find a way to preserve it. And I mean, that's what our, what our ancestors have done is they've needed to preserve the harvest to get get them through the winter. Um, so with milk, um, that became, you know, making yogurt, making cheese, finding a way to stabilize in that case, you know, milk product, but that's, that's kind of what happens throughout all of it, vegetables, fruit. Um, and, you know, at first I was doing a lot of canning. Um, and then, you know, especially for low, acid vegetables, which is pretty much all the vegetables. They don't have a high acid content. Um, The way to preserve them is either to water bath can them, which renders them mushy and, you know, any vitamins are probably gone, um, or to pickle them, which is to acidify them somehow or another. So there's, there's two types of pickling. One is to add vinegar, and the other is to allow the microbes to do it themselves. And so with the garden, um, we started fermenting a lot of these vegetables because they were much more vibrant and full of life. And that turned into a little food company and, and, and that took us, you know, down that path of educating because people really wanted to understand these, these foods. And, and from that education, uh, it started to make much more sense to me to teach people, um, to ferment for themselves rather than to try to make a product to sell to people. Um, it just seems much more empowering. And so we were, we were doing fermented vegetables um, commercially. And then meanwhile, what we had thought we were going to do was um, we have a lot of old apple trees and we planted a lot of apple trees on the, on the property and we thought we were going to become a cider company 
Um, but it took us, you know, a few years in the world of product companies to realize that um, we didn't want to continue to be a cider or, or any kind of product company, cider or otherwise. And so <laughs> we um, really pivoted to to teaching through the books and through traveling to teach teach folks how to ferment. Um, and with COVID, that all changed. And so now um, I'm a co-founder of a women-run online fermentation school where people can take classes from us online. That is so cool. So how do you, do you like post videos or like do you have live seminars for, and then people follow along with you to do things at home? Um, you know, most of what we do are um, pre-recorded classes and they're put together with a curriculum. They have... Um, you know, videos that go, go with them, a workbook in many of the cases that people can just follow along at their own pace. They have forever access. So once they buy the class, they're a student of the school um, and they can, you know, engage in that class however they want. They can reach out for support if they need it. Um, and then we have an active community on the school where students can also talk to each other which is kind of cool. So your topic, your, um, your ingredient of choice is apples. So why don't you give us some fun facts about apples and then you can teach us how they become apple cider vinegar. Absolutely. Um, yeah, apples are a wonderful, wonderful fruit. They have a super long history. Um, there are actually wild apple orchards still in Kazakhstan, which is not orchards, sorry, they're forests. Um, and that's, if we're, if we're talking bucket list thing, that's definitely on my bucket list of a place I'd love to go see. Each apple, each, each, each fruit, each of those seeds will produce an entirely different um, tree. So um, if you think of humans, you know, you have two parents and Let's say there's five children, and each of those five children are, are quite different. Um, an apple is like that, too. Each of those seeds will grow into its own tree, and the fruit on that tree may or may not be at all like the parent's fruit, and they will all be different from each other as, as you know, the siblings, if you will, of those, those trees. Um, so there's thousands and thousands of varieties of apples, um, both named and wild, um, many don't taste great, but many do. And so throughout time, when people have discovered an apple that they thought tasted really good, say a yellow delicious, for example, um, they would start to graft that, that tree. So if you have a, you know, a certain variety, let's say a Kingston black, it came from a tree somewhere that somebody decided was tasty, they named it, they shared sticks with their friends, they grew more apples, and, um, you know, that variety is still around. Basically, every one of those trees being a clone off of that original, that original tree. Um, and so that's where you get, like, the idea of heirloom apples. You know, some of these apple varieties have been shared and, and propagated for you know, hundreds of years and are still, are still around. Um, many of the more modern apples, you know, are, are 
figured out in, you know, university extension lab settings or whatever to try to um, have certain properties, but yeah. So can you, so um, wild apples, you'll have that natural variety, but then apples that you buy at the store, those, those varieties that are um, singled out, um, can you explain grafting? Sure. So all you need is, uh, you know, a a stick basically from that tree. So let's say, um, so I have 150 year old pioneer planted trees on our property and if I want to um, make a new one of those trees what I will do is I'll go find a piece of last year's growth so the, the one-year-old growth not a not an old stick but the new growth last month might have been perfect you know before they start waking up and you take and you take those that stick and you cut it so that there's just two little buds on it and you stick that um, on a rootstock. And what a rootstock is, is it's, it's basically um, a type of root that will host that apple tree. Um, and what you want is those cambium layers to touch. So as long as a little bit of that skin and that layer that, that is... Um, where the nutrients are flowing back and forth or touching, then that apple tree will accept, I mean, the, I guess the rootstock will accept that little stick, um, send nutrients to those buds. They'll start budding out, sending a stick up into the, into the world, and that will eventually become the tree. Um, the other How... way is, of course, a seedling. And some people, you know, they'll grow out seedlings and then graft on trees or they'll grow out seedlings and just see what they become to create new apple varieties how can like I thought things had to have roots to grow so how can you just put something on a root and then it just happens how does that (laughs) I don't understand how that fusion happens sure I mean it's probably if we go back to like what it might be similar to a human it's probably like um you know if if we were able to graft on a new arm we aren't able to do that so maybe you know like a like a kidney transplant like that root is functioning in the plant and what we're doing is we're attaching it in such a way that all the little capillaries and all the little ways that it the root would take the nutrient to feed its plant is now going to go through to that little piece of stick. And as soon as that little piece of stick is getting nutrients, they're going to start fusing together and become one. Wow. You know a lot. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. So shall we move to like apple fermentation from the blossom onward, as you were saying? Absolutely. Um, So there's some really... So fermentation, let's just even start what that is. Um, So fermentation is microbes, basically in in context of what we're talking about is food preservation, as we're using the microbes to change our food in a way that will um, enhance it and stabilize it. Fermentation of apples and fruit comes naturally. So for example, we've got our blossom. In that blossom, there are wild yeasts and 
there's little pollinators and they're buzzing back and forth and you know exchanging pollen but they've also they're also carrying yeasts and the blossom has yeasts and so it's kind of cool because there's these microbes that are kind of hitching rides and and moving along along the way those yeasts and all those microbes and there's also you know bacteria in there too which which will be our vinegar bacteria Um, it's all contained within that blossom as that apple grows all those microbes are in and out of that apple. So the ones that are on the blossom might be down in the core, more yeasts and different things from just the air, you know, will be on the skin. So once that apple is ready, it is just in any fruit or any vegetable, but it is full of um, microbes. And most of those microbes are, are, you know, fine for us. They, they don't offer any, bad things they and so that apple is full of sugar well everything wants sugar as soon as that apple falls to the ground and starts to either be nibbled on by a deer or maybe it breaks open or whatever um all those yeasts are going to start consuming that sugar um and as soon as they do they're going to make alcohol and as soon as there's alcohol there are um, something called acetic bacteria and they're waiting in the wings and they consume apple, alcohol and they, they create acid. And so that's, that's kind of where the vinegar process would be in the wild, right? It's just this full, full cycle. Um, so as humans, you know, at some point that was discovered and people fermented on purpose they took their grapes and their apples and their dates and and whatever and allowed it to to ferment with the yeasts until it became alcohol um and throughout history it was you know hard for them to keep their 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 wine or whatever stable um so it it invariably would become vinegar. Um, As soon as there's oxygen around, the vinegar bacteria need oxygen and they will start consuming that that alcohol. And that's why a bottle of wine, if it's corked and there's no oxygen that gets in there, will stay around for a number of years. But as soon as you open it, drink some, and maybe then the next morning you think you're going to, or next, excuse me, next day, you think you're going to have some more. And then you taste it and it's already got some kind of acid vinegar notes. That's because the vinegar bacteria is all around us and it's opportunistic and there was some alcohol and there was some oxygen. And so it started doing its thing. So with apples in the places where people, you know, people made vinegar with what they had. So if you were in the Mesopotamian region, you were going to make your vinegar out of dates. If you were in the tropics, you might make your alcohol first um, out of palm syrup or sap and then into eventually vinegar. Um, And then the vinegar was much more stable because once it was vinegar, you know, it was going to take it a lot longer to move on to its next life. Um, As long as you keep the oxygen off of it, it, it's super stable. Um, anything super acidic is going to help with preservation. And vinegar is in all the ancient texts 
um, materia medicas as you know very medicinal and it was that acid right it was it was for using um, for cleansing wounds um, used in you know various things with stomach upset or whatever because it's what they had in it and it worked really well Wow. Okay. Question. I'm curious about how, when people first began to ferment their food, I mean, obviously they didn't have like easy or easy access to refrigeration or whatever in some parts of the world. So maybe it was kind of easier for things to just ferment naturally because, you know, they don't have a fridge or whatever, but I'm curious how they started doing it intentionally without necessarily knowing about all the different facets, all the different little microorganisms involved? Sure. Um, there's really, you know, people don't know when they started because it's been done for so long. Um, you know, in China, you're going to find, uh, and I don't remember, it's 2,000 or 4,000 years old, so I'm not going not gonna to commit, but there are pot shard pots that have been found with residue of rice wines. Um, and so you know, we know at least, at least that long, but, um, I'm sure it's, it's much longer than that because it is, I mean, people also called fermentation controlled rot because it is what happens. I mean, it's going to happen regardless. It's kind of catching it and stabilizing it away that, um, so I think people, you know, they, they observed and, and, there are parts of the world that still don't have refrigeration accessible to them. Um, you know, it's very new on the scene. And so a lot of our favorite foods that we don't even think about um, come from fermentation. You know, any of our, you know, charcuterie type meats, salami or whatever is because that was a, it's a fermented product and it was a way to stabilize that meat. Cheese, you know, you're taking something that that is fluid and can go bad quickly to something that will just get harder and harder and kind of more interesting in flavor. You know, we, a true cheese, you know, wasn't, wasn't refrigerated like we keep them now. Um, And so, yeah, to answer your question a long time ago. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I'm, I'm always curious about how people discovered things, you know, like it, was it by accident? Did someone just like follow their intuition? Like, I think this is maybe going to happen. And then they're like, well, why did that happen? I'm just always curious, like how, how we got, like where the knowledge came from. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm sure no one can. Well, that. and then in some, you know, in some cases there are, there's lore, you know, like there's a Japanese ferment called Mato and it's um, basically these stringy beans that have been um, fermented soybeans with uh, bacillus subtilis and you know the lore is that soldiers had cooked a pot of soybeans and then they realized they were under attack and they wrapped them up in uh, rice straw and put it on the side of their you know their horse and rode away for a couple days and when they undid their beans you know they were they were sticky and somebody said, Oh, let's taste these. Like, you know, is that the true story? I mean, something happened, you know, somebody figured out, even though it looks and stinks that it's actually not rotten. 
someone has to be willing to die. That's always what I'm thinking. Like someone's got to be that person to step forward and say, I'm going to figure out whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. Sure. And I mean, this is, this is woo woo thinking, but I, I also think that, that people just were, or it could be taken as woo woo thinking, but I just think people were so much more in tune and connected with what was going on um, true, than true. we are now. And we probably can't even relate to um, the, the ways they were able to, you know, understand and intuit stuff because they were just, you know, more, more aware and more open to, to the signals than I think we are. Right. Right. That was more of a focus for sure. You mentioned that vinegar has a next life. What is the step beyond vinegar? (laughs) Well, it's actually, I think it's pretty cool. So it's it's like everything on this planet it's a very complete system so we we keep that vinegar open to oxygen so so the vinegar you buy in the stores often unless you're buying your raw apple cider vinegar it's often been pasteurized Um, part of the reason for that is so that it it halts the continued action of those microbes the continued fermentation and so um if you're working with a raw vinegar and, you know, let's say you're continuing to ferment it and you forget about it, um, that vinegar is still happily doing its thing. Um, those, those vinegar bacteria, when they run out of alcohol, will start consuming the acid they created and you wait long enough and you will have water again. No way. <laughs> yep. Are you serious? One hundred percent. Have you ever done that before? Oh yeah. So on wait purpose. A sec. It's not <laughs> just water, right? Like I'm sure it must be like fermenty fe- tasting. Well, the it gets weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. So yeah, I mean it's not it's not delicious, clean, crystal clean <laughs> water. The other thing that's usually developed alongside of it is a is a vinegar mother, which looks like a scoby. So that's the bacteria basically pooping out cellulose for lack of a better explanation. <laughs> and so, Make it sound more glamorous, please. I know, right? One more, just one more little note. And this one is more exciting in my opinion. So we are thrilled to announce our new sponsor, Wild Coast Seafoods, founded by my very cool older brother who was on the episode... Uh, in September on here about sockeye salmon. Very good time. Fun was had by all. Um, So Wild Coast Seafood specializes in small batch seafood production, allowing them to preserve the highest quality available. Um, it's, It's Alaskan seafood, which I don't think I mentioned yet. Their current offering is wild Pacific cod harvested in April and shrimp harvested in May. This seafood is available currently in the Boise area, but they're going to expand, so stay tuned. For more information, check them out at wildcoastseafoods.fish. Not .com, .fish. A link is in the show notes. Um, so that's what's going on. They are consuming, and the, the byproduct eventually is still the cellulose and um, just water. And so, yeah, I've let them go long enough where you get a big fat, mother um and you get like this really weak kind of dirty tasting water yeah so i mean but 
but you think about that and you think about that on the how we talked about the earlier example of what would fruit do in the wild so in the wild those apple trees right they're they're little fruits going to be eaten by birds and i mean i don't know if you've ever um looked but there's old um youtube videos of you know monkeys and whatnot getting getting drunk on on fruit and i mean that that's real like like the fruit would fall and there would be a whole pile of apples under this tree right and all the animals are gonna kind of eat on it in its various stages of of ripeness to alcohol to vinegar but a lot of that fruit's just going to stay there on the ground as it would and it will just you know by the next season the bacteria will have broken it down to the point where it's just water and nutrient for that tree so i mean it's part of what then in the next season is going to wake up that tree and travel up in the in the sap and you know start the action all over again it's a closed loop that's just absolutely crazy and and wild to me yeah it's cool it's pretty cool the systems and they place. don't they said all they're no. they got it they yep. got it all discovered all figured out yep <laughs> yeah. and all we're coming in when we decide that we're going to make some hard cider or we're going to make some vinegar is we're shepherding what they do naturally we're we're not doing anything but understanding what their needs are um, which are pretty simple and providing those needs and then stopping the process at the place that we want to enjoy it so when you buy raw apple cider vinegar and then vinegar that has been pasteurized what is the difference as far as like um like how it would affect your digestion like what's uh one is alive, one is not. And so does the one that's, that is pasteurized, um, yeah, like what's, what value does it provide? What's the point of buying it? Well, I think if you're buying a, any vinegar that actually comes from fruit, you know, pasteurized or not, I think you're going to get some value from it. Um, the problem is so many people love like to can and make their pickles with um, white vinegar. Now, white vinegar is produced um, very quickly. It's actually, it is actually still fermented, but so I am going to answer your question, but I'm going to take a, a long way to get there. Take so, <laughs> so vinegar needs sugar, right? I, I don't know if I was completely like pointing that out when we first went through the process, but to make vinegar, you need sugar. So in the case of apple cider vinegar, we're using the apple sugar, right? And that is what's going to become that acid. Um, so for something like a um, white distilled vinegar, they're using whatever carbohydrate they have. So it can be wood pulp, it can be um, petroleum based, it oh. can be, it's often, you know, maybe corn or grain based. Just because cheap. Cheap, plentiful stuff. Cheap, plentiful stuff that then becomes <laughs> alcohol, so ethanol. So any cheap, plentiful sugar becomes ethanol. Um, they take that ethanol and they run it through these um, 
they call them generators. Um, but what they are is they're basically running that ethanol, so that alcohol, and they've got these these microbes that have been kind of bred, if you will, to consume faster. So it's like little vinegar bacteria on steroids. And that ethanol is injected or run through this process in a way that puts a bunch of oxygen in the process. So if you think about a slow fermentation, only the top layer of, like if it's in a, you know, in a urn or a bottle or a jar or something, only that top layer. So it's, it's going to be a slower fermentation, right? As, as the top layer gets oxidized by that oxidation, um, which vinegar is basically an oxidation process. And so that vinegar or that cheap ethanol is put through the generator and in, you know, an hour or so later, they've got vinegar. Whoa. Whereas like a true apple cider vinegar, especially if they're not using a generator, um, is going to take a month or more. Um, so I guess the first thing isn't so much about whether it's raw or not raw, but it's like, what was that original ingredient? You know, and so these artisan vinegars, even if they're pasteurized, are going to be so much better for you than, you know, something like a, a white vinegar, which is great for cleaning. And that's about it. Mm. Um, so, but once you get to two apple cider vinegars that are sitting next to each other and one's pasteurized and one's not, um, the thing you're going to get are... Um, they're both going to still have, you know, certain qualities of vitamins and, and all these interesting things that happen with the fermentation. Um, but the unpasteurized one is going to have live enzymes, which, you know, will help. That's why people like to take a little swig of raw apple cider vinegar before they have something to eat, because those, those enzymes are not going to be denatured. They're going to be alive and well and kind of help not only the acid, but those enzymes will help, you know, jumpstart your digestive system. Um, and so that's, that's one of the, one of the differences and anything that goes through heat process, you know, you're going to lose some of the finer points of um, esters and, and flavors and, and different things that might happen along the way. Sweet. Okay. If you don't know this, this is okay, but you, you might, no. So do you know what enzymes are in apple cider vinegar? I don't know exactly. Okay. <laughs> the enzymes. Okay. That's like very, very specialty right there. I, I was curious because um, I also, that is a trick I do before I eat sometimes too. And I was just curious um, like how it specifically, how it helps the digestion process, but. Well, that, enzymes, you know, help by breaking down proteins. And so them being around and, and, in, you know, your stomach as you're trying, trying to digest is just part of that breaking down. Because I think of enzymes, you know, whatever kind they are, as like little, little snippers, like if you imagine little, little, little scissors, and they're breaking <laughs> things down. I like and that. Yeah. So if you have, so if you have amylase enzymes, they're going to be breaking down the starches, you know, they're going to, take those larger starch molecules and cut them into their lower simple sugars. Um, pr 
protease is going to be breaking down your proteins and taking those larger protein molecules that don't have a lot of flavor, for example, like this is outside of your stomach, this is in fermentation, but they're going to break that down into their smaller parts, which are the amino acids. But that inside of you is also going to happen. But now you've got amino acids that are healthy that we need for, you know, our well-being. So it's a whole lot of complicated going on in there, but <laughs> we need it to happen. <laughs> okay. And what kind of vinegars have you made? I was looking at your website, which um, we need to we need to share what your website is and where people can find the fermentation school. But um, it might be either a cookbook or a course that you offer, and it's it's like pineapple and like all kind of dates you were saying and like all kinds of vinegars. So how many different kinds have you made? Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, anything that has sugar, I've made into vinegar. So yes, I have used you know, many, many kinds of fruits. I've used sweet potatoes. I've used um, scraps. Um, I've used flowers. I, you know, I can make a vinegar out of anything. Some things need <laughs> added sugar to make sure that it becomes acidic enough, but other things, you know, have the right amount. So for example, an apple, it has the right amount of nutrient and the right amount of sugar to create a vinegar super easily as do you know grapes um and pineapple and things like that some things like raspberries they don't actually have enough sugar on their own so you need to add a little so that they create a strong enough acid in the end but yeah i mean i i will make vinegar out of um you know carrot peels um i think I think kind of what's really neat about vinegar making if people are interested in it is it's an it's a really fun way to discover sort of these hidden flavors that are within you know scraps I mean there's a whole chapter in my book about using scraps to to make vinegar um, so that's what scrap vinegar is it's just like being um being aware of the potential that you have that a lot of people just throw away and then you can make something mm -hmm. amazing out of it. Yep. And in, you know, in some cases you're getting that potential in the form of what sugar's still left in the, in the, in the scrap. And in some cases, you know, it's all about that flavor that's still left in the scrap. And so, yeah, you can go so many different directions. And I think the other thing people are just generally surprised about is because Vinegar is such this ubiquitous liquid that's in people's cabinets that they don't really use for much more than salad dressing is um, how different it can taste and how delicious it can be. Because we've, we've had so much industrialized vinegar, we don't think of it as anything but ugh, vinegar. It's acid. Right. You know, right. it's not sweet. But like one of my favorite vinegars is I will take my citrus peels and make a vinegar and I love a grapefruit vinegar and you splash that over you know some eggs as you're cooking them or you splash that into some bubbly water and now you've got a spritzer that you know was the outside of your grapefruits that, um, is that so you were going to cool. throw away oh so. that's so cool <laughs> here's my next question as a fermentation uh, expert and lover how's your digestion <laughs> I mean, I think it's fine. <laughs> you think it's fine? I feel pretty healthy, yeah. 
I, I just figured you must have a, a stomach that could handle anything. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't get sick while traveling or, you know, I, yeah, I, I think it's fine. Because you're constantly exposing your stomach, your system to like a lot of different kind of microbes and bacteria and stuff. I suppose so. Yes, I am. Wait, but oh. you know that. That said, you know, I I think that we all, especially in this in this world with with food systems as they are, you know, people people can step in in certain ways. But it, like for me, it's really easy to eat these foods. But you know, for somebody else, it it might not, or they might have to teach their system to handle it you know I mean it's just it's so individual and our and our guts are so um damaged in in varying degrees and fragile I guess like easy to get thrown off you know it is it's a funny thing I the more I learn the more I realize that on the one hand we're incredibly fragile and it is easy to throw them off but on the other hand we're also incredibly resilient and and while it takes work, um, we're in, in, our bodies are have the ability to heal themselves. You know, it's just whether I, you know, just it's just whether people can do the work or can get off of yeah. the types of foods that that aren't okay that that you know are very much with we're told that are good for us but, but they're not so much <laughs> right right, I mean, right right you so know the, can... the amount of sugar that we eat that we don't even know we're eating in industrialized foods is just it's not it's a, okay it's astounding yeah <laughs> okay so how can people find your courses to learn more Sure. So, um, as I mentioned, I'm a co-founder. So it's the fermentation, excuse me, not, it's the fermentation school, but our website is fermentationschool.com. Um, and there are vinegar, there's vinegar courses, there's, there's tempeh, there's, um, you know, sauerkraut, like a whole bunch of courses that either I or other instructors have put out there so I encourage people that are interested in fermentation to check that out there's like some pretty high quality stuff there um, and then my own website is ferment.works and, mm-hmm. and the cost of the courses is like completely it's much more um, reasonable than I expected it to be yeah I mean we we there's a you want you want it to be accessible you want to spread this knowledge exactly accessibility is hugely important to us and also um lifting the voices of the creators and we really thought that um there's so many there's so many people out there doing doing wonderful things but you know the the web isn't a world where you can get found and so um, supporting women that are trying to, um, you know, work within these spaces mm. is is a big piece of our, our goal and accessibility. That's wonderful. Cool. And then do you want anyone to be able to follow you on social media or do you want to just stick to these websites? Oh, socials is great. Um, the one where you'll actually find me participating the most is probably Instagram. And 
and um, I'm at Kirsten K. Shockey. Ooh, I've been saying your name wrong. I'm so sorry. Kirsten. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, any last thoughts to leave with us? You've already brought the, you've already brought your game, your A game, but is there anything lingering that you want to share? You know, I think just always I want to share, you know, we as humans are here because our ancestors uh, fermented successfully. (laughs) Um, And it's not hard. I encourage people to not be afraid. It's very safe. Um, I think, I think there's, there's a lot to be discovered. Um, I would love to see a jar of fermenting vegetables on every counter. I mean, I feel like there's so much there. One is just taking a little bit of control over your own health, but, but like we talked about with the apple, there's just that grounding and understanding of systems that can happen when you are watching the microbes work and, and understanding kind of our planet as a whole of just seeing that, that jar on the counter doing its Mm. thing without you. Um, I think it can be pretty profound for some people. And, and I think their biggest showstopper is fear and it, it, it's easy. It's safe whether you decide you want to make vinegar or you decide you want to make, you know, fermented carrots. And um, yeah, I I guess just always encouraging people to just kind of give it a try. And it, and it, it's actually a time saver because um, if you think about it, the microbes are doing all that cooking for you and you're getting these great delicious condiments that are just ready to go when you, when you quickly need something fresh (laughs) awesome well thank you i've been wanting to dip into the fermentation game for a while and i have been scared (laughs) so um thank you for that and i i am interested in taking a course of yours as well in the future so thank you for being on the show kirsten i'm so sorry i said your name wrong at the beginning oh no worries (laughs) (laughs) all right well thank you and have a great rest of your day thank you meredith you do the same All right, bye. Bye.